0: Good morning. I'll be reading from the second chapter of John, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: So as I was preparing for the sermon today and looking over this passage, it got me thinking about my own wedding day. I've done a lot of weddings over the years as a pastor, but I don't think I've ever talked to another groom who had a, a wedding day like mine. Uh, see, my sister and brother-in-law came into town for our wedding a few days before, and I got talking to them, and their car had had some damage done to it, and. Somewhere along the line I agreed to do all the bodywork on their car and paint it before my wedding came. And so in those couple of days I thought I could get it done. Well, I didn't. And so on my wedding day I got up very early in the morning, finished prepping their car and then I painted their car that day and got it all painted. So a couple of hours before my wedding was to begin, uh, this garage I was doing the work in was behind my parents' house, had a shop set up there and A couple hours before my wedding was began, I hear a tap on the window and I look over and there's my mother all dressed for the wedding and she's going, (laughs) I understood the message. I wrapped it up and went in and got cleaned up and I made it on time. Got to my wedding on time, Uh, I noticed during the ring ceremony I still had silver paint on my hands, uh, but my wife probably uh, expected that. So it wasn't a problem. The other thing that was kind of different about my wedding day was that Laura and I were talking about this. I don't remember having a rehearsal for my wedding. I don't know if the pastor that did our wedding just didn't do rehearsals, but I don't remember having a rehearsal. And when I showed up for my wedding, I honestly didn't have a clue what was going to go on. I didn't know who was singing in it. I didn't know the various pieces of it. As people would get up and sing, like a couple of people sang kind of songs as a prelude, it was all a surprise to me. It was a wonderful gift. I thought, oh, that's really cool! During the wedding, as someone got up and sang, oh, that's neat—they're singing. Uh, I had fully embraced this idea that the wedding was the responsibility of the bride and her family, and had completely handed it over to the point I was clueless about the whole thing. Uh, you all probably surprised my wife still married me, but she did. Uh, she took me in out of pity, and. I tell you truth, if I would have been in the day that this story occurred, um, that John is writing about, I would have really been in trouble. I probably should have been in trouble then, but I really would have been in trouble here, because in that culture, it was the responsibility of the groom and his family to put on the wedding and to put on the wedding feast, and not only to put on a reception like we do, but their wedding feast often lasted for seven days. And it was their responsibility to provide all the food and all the drink. And many times it was their whole community would participate. So seven days of food and drink, I would have absolutely come up short like this guy did. I'd have probably ran out an hour in. But he ran out at some point. So at some point the wine ran out. The other thing that was true in this culture that's different than ours probably is that that was a source of just real shame in the community if you didn't provide well for the wedding feast, if you didn't have enough food and enough drink and you didn't provide the best celebration, that would have been just a a public shame. That would have been a huge social blunder to the people of that community. And they said people would have carried that shame sometimes for months or years later. It was just a horrible dishonor upon your family not to have provided well for the wedding. So again, I would have absolutely been in trouble. And that's the case here, where they've run out of wine too soon, and again, a bigger deal than we would probably think of it being, and Jesus steps in and he rescues the day. And we're told that he turned water into wine, and he actually produced anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That is a lot of wine he produced to keep this party going. When his mother presented him with the problem and he responded to her, one of the things he said to her was, my hour has not yet come. And throughout the New Testament, when he refers to his hour, he's talking about the hour of his death on the cross. So it's kind of strange, seems like he's saying here, my hour has not yet come. But I think what he is saying here is that if I step out and I begin to reveal who I am, if in this moment I pull the curtain back and you get a glimpse at who I am, at my glory, I have now started that path towards the cross. That public revelation of who I am will now begin. And that's a path that comes with persecution, with suffering, with people crowding in to get his attention and his help. It's a big decision. Do I now step in? Is this the beginning of that public path? John says it was. It was his first sign that revealed something of who he was. And John tells us at the beginning of his gospel that this is what this gospel's going to be about. He says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And then later in chapter 20, he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is revealing these these events, these miraculous signs, he calls them, because he wants to point our attention back to the fact that Jesus is this Messiah, this chosen one, the one and only Son of God. He wants us to see it. His glory is being revealed. He's pulling back the curtain a little. And we get to see not only that God works through him, because, you know, other prophets perform miracles, miracles that happen uh, through others. But this isn't just God working through him. This is the glory of God in him. God's transcendent majesty and power and splendor and beauty resides in Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God. And John says that this sign was the first that began to reveal it. Now, i got to admit, when I first read this, I thought, I thought, Jesus, of all the things you could start with, of all the things that would be your first miraculous sign, there are a lot of other miracles seem like a good first move, you know, that he performed. This one was producing a whole lot of wine for some already kind of inebriated people. It just seemed like a strange start to me. Why this? But as I dug in and looked deeper, what I find is I think there are a lot of ways that this event really was something that was meant to, to be a sign, as John said. You know, in a sign, we hang over something to kind of identify what it is, or, it's a, or it points us towards something to show us the way to it. This is a sign. This is not just a miracle. This is also revealing something more about who Jesus is than just someone who can perform a miracle. And when you look closely, I think you find there are a whole lot of clues there to reveal his real identity, his real character. So I want to point out a few of those, what I think are clues They're revealed in this act. The first one I want to talk about is the way he responds to his mom. So so his mom comes to him, and for some reason, she seems kind of involved in the catering of this this feast. Not sure why. Maybe it was a close relative getting married. Maybe it was a close friend. Uh, But for some reason, she seems involved in it, and she's aware they're running out of wine. Again, huge social blunder. So she comes to her oldest son and tells him what's going on, there's a problem, seems to be asking him to step in and help in some way. I don't know that she knew he was gonna perform a miracle, but she's asking him to step in and help, uh, to help solve the problem, which would probably be a common thing for a mom to do, to go to her eldest and ask for his help in this situation. But Jesus' response to her is, woman, why do you involve me? Now I gotta tell you, if my mom comes and asks me to do something, and my response to her is woman, I'm That that look that I got in that window of that garage is going to be minor compared to what I'm going to get for that uh, addressing her that way. Now, the older NIV uh, interprets it as dear woman. The more literal translation is probably just woman, but the reason they do that is because they're trying to soften it a little because in that culture, the, the way of addressing wasn't really so much rude. It was actually polite. It was a polite way to speak, but it wasn't the way a son would usually speak to his mother. It surely wasn't an endearing term by any means. It was a term that kind of had a little bit of a hand in front of it. It said, slow down, back off. Dear woman, I'm told that it would be similar in our culture to maybe the term ma'am. So I have a friend here who hates when I call her ma'am. She, uh, she confronts me every time I call her ma'am because she says it sounds impersonal. But I, I just somehow raised where every time I answer a woman, I say yes ma'am or no ma'am. It's just my natural response. I almost can't stop doing it. Uh, but she doesn't like it. She says it's too impersonal. Well, I was thinking when I read this, if that's really kind of what this means, then Jesus did it, so I've got perfect (laughs) justification here. Um, But actually, it probably more justifies her point because I think Jesus was doing it in a way to be a little distant because it was a little impersonal. It's the same way he addresses her from the cross. But again, I, I think on purpose there's something that's not quite as warm and endearing in this response. And if you don't see it in the way he addresses her, you definitely see it in the question. He says, why do you involve me? Again, not necessarily rude, but pretty abrupt. Again, maybe kind of a slow down and back off here. Somewhat of a rebuke in his words. My wife and I recently watched a couple episodes of the show on Netflix, The Crown. Any of you guys watch that? So it's the the story of Queen Elizabeth II. And it's the story of when her father, the king, dies, and she's suddenly thrust into the position of queen as as a young woman and a young bride and suddenly takes on that role. One of the things that was interesting to me as we were watching a couple of those episodes was as soon as she became queen, everyone had to start responding to her differently. Even her sister and her mother suddenly had to curtsy when she came into a room. They have to address her in a very kind of formal way because she's now the queen. She didn't stop being sister or mother, but now her role has changed where she is leader and representative of a whole nation. And so now that must take priority. That is first place. They're still mother and sister, but they're also subjects of the queen, and they must respond to her that way. I think it's some of what Jesus is doing here. I think he is sending the message not just to them, Not just to his mother, but also to those who are listening in and watching and those of us who would someday look in on this story. That he's beginning to reveal who he really is. That he can't be controlled by just her plans and her wishes. He must serve the plan of the Father. He's on a divine mission, and that has to take priority above everything else. Every decision now must be weighed based upon who he truly is who he's revealed to be as he reveals his glory to us. He says in John chapter 5, Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. I don't think he's saying to his mom that somehow I'm no longer your son. But he is saying to his mom that I am also your Lord. And his mom seems to recognize that. She doesn't respond with resistance. She doesn't seem to be upset with it. She seems to understand that. She is his mother. But he is also his Lord, her Lord. And she has to recognize that the way all of us do. Um, it says something about her relationship to him, but it also says something about our relationship to him. Because now suddenly in that role as Lord, even Even his mother must come before him and bow before his throne and acknowledge her allegiance first and foremost to him. If his mother must do it, of course we must do that. Of course all of us must recognize him as our Lord, and we must come before his throne humbly and submit to him. But it also says a second thing, and you see that in another incident in Mark chapter 3 where Jesus is sitting with a crowd of people and someone comes to him and says, your mother and your brother are outside. You know, they want to see you. And then he says this, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Again, is he, is he putting down his mom and his brothers? I don't think so. I think he's simply saying, you know what, their, their status is like yours. Those of you who are followers of my Father as I am, all of you are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. That role now takes prominence. I am the Lord over all creation, over all I have created, and my care and my guidance and my protection and my blessing pours out on all of us. We stand shoulder to shoulder with his mother and his brothers and his sister before him. It's a remarkable thing. In Christ, we have equal access, we have equal care, we have equal love, um, but we also equally um, are in need of his grace and his mercy. We also equally must bow before him as our Lord. It changes the way I look at myself and the way I think about myself because I'm a family member, but it also ought to change the way I think about others who are citizens of his kingdom. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. It doesn't matter how much wealth you have. It doesn't matter your race, your gender. It doesn't matter how good-looking you are. It doesn't matter what you do for a job or what your education is. It doesn't matter what kind of personality you have. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ are part of his family. He sees every one of us as his family. And as anyone does who is the leader of their family, they want their family to care for and love one another. It's what he wants from us every single one of us, no matter what the world says about us. This is who we truly are as he revealed to us and as he revealed his glory. And his mom gets it again. She tells the servants, come on, bring to him whatever he wants, do whatever he wants. And so he says to the servants, I want you to take these stone jars, these six stone jars that are sitting over there that are used for ceremonial washing, we're told, to fill them up with water and to bring them to me. Now, if you want to understand a little better what this means, the ceremonial washing, there's a great picture of it in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 7 says this, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So following the tradition of the elders, they are Every time the Pharisees, every time they've touched anything, in the marketplace anything, they have to make themselves ceremonial clean again. Ceremonially clean. Even their utensils have to be made clean. So this water is set aside to do that. Now in this story in Mark, Jesus actually rebukes them for this because they have taken what the Old Testament prescribed and they've taken it well beyond what it prescribes. They have put an extra burden on the people to be making themselves ceremonial clean in the way Scripture doesn't call them to do. But what it did call them to do is before we come before god and this wasn't about hygiene this was about something that represented the fact that when we come before our god when they enter the temple when they enter a holy place it was a reminder that we must be clean as we come before a holy god that we are in need of atonement we are in need of having our sins washed away to be with a holy god and so that's that's what they were supposed to be teaching they took it further but that was the principle that was legitimate that was in there. And so Jesus takes this water that they used to make themselves clean, and he turns it into wine. Wine in that time was often referred to as the blood of the grape. And as we go on in Scripture, Jesus will use wine as a symbol again and again for his blood. Matter of fact, see in John chapter 6, just a few chapters later, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. They had washed themselves with water to try and make themselves clean. And I think Jesus is beginning to reveal to them that the way they would truly be made clean the way they'll truly be made pure is that they'll be washed in his blood. 1 John 1.7, it is the blood of Jesus that purifies us from all sin. Jesus steps into this situation to save this bridegroom and his family from shame. And what he reveals, even in the way he does it, that the way he is going to take away all our disgrace, all our shame that sin brings upon us, is he is going to wash it away with his blood. And I think the symbol of the line already begins to give us a clue and points to that. A third clue that I think reveals his glory is just the fact that he steps into the role of the bridegroom. He takes on the role that belonged to the bridegroom. From Hosea to Revelation, you'll find again and again the bridegroom uses a, an image of God. But here Jesus isn't just stepping into the role of the bridegroom. He does it better than the bridegroom could ever do, than any bridegroom could ever do. He doesn't just take care of the problem. He provides wine in incredible abundance and the finest possible wine in a way that's shocking. He, he gives us the resources we need, but he does above and beyond anything we could imagine or anything we could ask for. You see it in John chapter 2 and verse 9. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then they called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now, the finest wine, the finest wine in abundance. Now I think his disciples listening in, who have all their lives been told to be watching for the coming Messiah, the one who would save them, who would save Israel, who've been hearing the words of the prophets again and again so they would know that's the Messiah coming, I think they would have understood in what Jesus was doing. There was more than just solving a problem at a wedding, that these were signs that pointed to something more, pointed to who he truly was. They would have heard the words like the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines, On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. That's the Messiah they were waiting for. And in what Jesus was doing, I think he's already giving us clues, pictures. That's me. I am the one that the transcendent presence and power of God rests in me. God is before you. Even Amos says that when the Messiah comes, the mountains will drip with wine. Uh, The valleys will flow with it. He's not just going to provide this wine that was life-giving to them, uh, enough to get by. He's going to provide it in abundance. Picture what he's doing. And his disciples seem to understand this. They understood this was more than just some miraculous thing that solved an immediate problem. They looked at it through the eyes of faith and saw the Messiah, saw the promised one, the one and only Son of God. So what's all this mean for us? There's some obvious things, though. But think with me a minute, because this story isn't told just because we're to be amazed by the fact that the disciples saw his glory and were changed. But it's meant to change us. As he's revealed his glory to us it's meant to have an impact upon us to change our understanding of who he is in such a way that it produces life within us again he's revealed that he's the Lord over all creation even his mother had to bow before him just as we do that every one of us is now as followers of his father we become brothers and sisters and mother with him his family and What does it mean to be a part of his family? He said it just means to be the ones who do the will of his father. And what is the will of his father? That we put our trust in his son. If we have, we are family members. He's the one who purifies. He's the one who removes all our guilt and shame. If we will just confess our sin to him, he will lift us up and he will make us clean. He's the generous bridegroom. He wants us to enjoy the very best that he has to offer. Even beyond our imagination, he wants to give us good gifts. He wants to remove our shame. So as I was thinking about this passage this week, it was a real appropriate passage for me. Um, A couple months ago, I just went through a really unusually difficult time. It's even hard for me to kind of describe what was going on. We had a couple of real difficult circumstances came into our life, but I can't honestly say that was really the whole root of it. Uh, It was more a trigger to something, but it was a trigger that I just couldn't get past. I just couldn't kind of find a way to move on uh, in the midst of the hard time. Um, And so it kind of produced to me this really dark place. It was just a hard place for me. It was a sense of kind of, you know, how you get to those places where every failure, every inadequacy, everything wrong just keeps replaying in your head. You almost can't shut it off. And I just got stuck in that place somehow. Nothing seemed hopeful, nothing seemed good. It seemed like the best I could hope for was just don't disappoint people too bad. Just suck it up, do enough to not disappoint anybody too badly, which is a hard place to be. Um, and it was a place that I just found I couldn't even maintain that. I just got to a place I just thought, I don't know what's going on, but I just can't keep it going. And I did two things, and I, I'm thankful to say I don't feel at that place right now. I'm thankful to say God has lifted me up out of that place. But two things that I did in response to that. The first thing was I went to some others and asked for help. I went to Bob and talked to him, and he and several other staff members stepped up and took things off my shoulders and uh, gave me a month of pretty light schedule, a time when I could just kind of recover and draw close to God and gave me space to do that. The second thing, though, that I found really helpful for me was I kept thinking of a story that Yancey tells in one of his books. That story just kept running through my mind during that time. In the story, Yancey tells about um, a situation where a pastor he knew had gone through this kind of really dry time. He just felt like he did not have what he needed to pour into the lives of others, like he couldn't find the resources to do it. And so his name was Bill, and Yancey said that he decided to go off on a spiritual retreat to try and be renewed in some way because he was just, at again, a similar kind of dark place. And he said he went to the spiritual retreat, and he was assigned to a a spiritual director. In this case, was a nun. And he was to meet with her regularly and just kind of talk about his life. And he said he met with this nun, and he began recounting kind of his situation, what had been going on in his life, what he felt like were the burdens that he lived under and just the strain he was under and the difficult situations he was facing. And he said he just told his story, his gut-wrenching story. He poured out before her. And he said at the end, he was waiting for her to just show empathy and pour out empathy on him and comfort her, comfort him and lift him up and encourage him. And he said, instead, after I told this whole story and I'm waiting for that response, what came back to me from her was, well, Bill, given the story you've told me, I guess you're going to have to reach deeper. So that was not what I was looking for. <laughs> but I thought of that again and again and again. What good advice that was. I don't think she was saying to him, you need to reach deeper and find more of your own resources. Suck it up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder. I don't think that's what she was saying. I think what she was saying is that image that I've shared before that I love from Scripture, from Jeremiah 17, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. In that story, it's the story where the people of Judah are about to go into captivity in Babylon. And it is going to be a harsh time in their history. It's going to be difficult. They are going to suffer some really difficult things. It's described as this dry desert. It's going to be a hard place to find life. And God, through Jeremiah, is letting them know you're going to have two choices when you go into that hard place. Two ways to survive it. The one way he describes is the desert bush. and told it would be similar to like sagebrush that we see on movies or something. That it's a bush that was almost designed to survive in a harsh desert land. It used all its resources for just survival. It doesn't produce fruit. It doesn't produce much color. Its roots are close to the surface so it can catch the morning dew. It's designed to simply stay alive. That's about all it's good for. Or, he said, your other choice would be the path of the living tree. And he says, that tree, it's beside this stream and it reaches its fruits very deep. And it reaches out until it finds a resource beyond itself. It doesn't just look within. It looks outside itself and finds living water. And because it finds that resource, it can now produce fruit and color and life. Got two choices. So for me, that period of time a couple months ago, uh, I just kept thinking, God, you just want me to reach deeper. That's what you want me to do. That's what he wants all of us to do. I've said it to many others, and I thought it's time to apply it to myself. And what I'm thankful for is that as I reach deeper, as I look for that stream, that stream was there. As I looked for that stream, what I found was the Jesus of this story. I Think what he invites all of us to find. What I found was someone who, despite my shortcomings and my unworthiness and my failures and my weirdness and all those things, someone who's still there and grants me access before his throne. What I found is someone who, even in the face of my sin and my failure, he wants to lift me up. I found someone who doesn't just accept me in, but he literally runs to me and puts a robe on my shoulders and a ring on my finger and shoes on my feet, and he throws a celebration for me. He literally enjoys me, doesn't just tolerate me. Even in my fallen, sinful place, he receives me. The love of someone who is embracing their family. It's a remarkable thing. That when I bring my sins to him, he's quick to forgive them. And he doesn't just forgive, but he actually gives me an important place in his plan. Despite who I am, I don't need to be more because despite who I am, he will pour into me what I need to fulfill his good purposes and be a part of his good plan. What I find is a generous bridegroom somebody who wants to give me resources. When I stopped and reflected on it, I thought, God, you have blessed me in ways that when I stop and remember are beyond anything I could ever have asked for. God, again and again, when I've come to you in prayer, you have listened and you have responded. And God, if you've done it before, I know you'll do it again. I don't know how. It'll probably surprise me. But God, I know that's the God you are, the generous bridegroom. This is Jesus. Jesus the one and only Son of our Father who is full of grace and truth, when we face those times, when we just face a day, whatever that day is, He asks us to reach deeper, to pay attention, to look for the clues, to look for His glory because it's that that's going to give us life that we might go on. Let's pray. And Father, how remarkable it is that You would love us enough that you would not only lift us up, but you would send your Son to do it, to live with us, to walk with us, to suffer beside us, to die for us. Father, we know that we not only need to turn to your Son, that our sins might be covered in His blood if we were to be acceptable in your sight, that we might be saved. But we know we need to turn to your Son every single day if we are to keep walking towards you and with you. And we thank you that we have a God who treats us as family, who receives us in, who grants us access. In your blessed name, amen.